Amen. Thank you, worship team. Some good songs this morning. Amen. Class? Oh, I shouldn't say that. I should say saints. You should have corrected me. Well, tonight in the auditorium at 6 o'clock, we will be having prayer meeting in spite of that great bowling league uh, competition that will be on TV today. And uh, it don't, nobody needs to feel guilty. I'm not a killjoy or hyper-spiritual. If you have big uh, party dip event going on, then look, look at it, look at it, look at it, look at it. <laughs> Come on, stand up, show everybody, show everybody. Oh, they're not even playing. Don't bother. Forget I said anything. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. We'll be, you know, those of you who are free, I know that we have at least probably 10 people anyway, but... I'll be praying, and uh, actually this morning our message is about that. If you looked in the bulletin, you might have noticed. So, let's see if I can get my uh, screens going. There we go, my picture of Lindisfarne Abbey. Uh, as a reminder that the church has been vital and will continue to be vital, even though locations tend to fall apart and saints move on, uh, the kingdom moves on to different continents, like it's moving away from North America today, and it's moved to South America and Africa and Asia, where there's a vital, fully believing, uh, gospel, uh, powerful ministry going on right now. Make uh, some of our churches in America look pretty anemic as far as their faith or lack thereof or belief in the Bible or any of that stuff. And uh, the reason that's true is because when uh, people are experiencing God vitally and seeing his hand and seeing the things that we find in the scripture revealed in reality, that kind of uh, blows away unbelief, makes even non-believers lean toward belief. Anybody follow what I mean? Okay, maybe not. All right, so today, if you would, turn in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in your pew. If you don't own one, you can take one from the pew and... Um, Page 569, it's the uh, first page of Philippians. If you own your own Bible or you have it on your phone, uh, feel free to look it up because I want the text to be there in front of you because I'm not putting it on the screen, but I'm going to be referencing a few of the words in these few verses of Philippians 1, 9 through 11 that we heard Joe um, read a few moments ago. Praying on target. <clears throat> I'm, of course, uh, making an assumption this morning. The assumption is that you are um, already persuaded that prayer is a vital part of a Christian's life. Now, maybe you're not a Christian yet, and you're thinking about it. It should become obvious that if you're going to get into a relationship with God, you're going to have to pray, because that's what prayer is, talking to God. You know, that's how you that, get that? Okay, like you, are you, do you guys have enough coffee? Okay, there's coffee back there. Okay, you're all set. Okay, so you need to talk to God, you know, like to have a relationship. When I fell in love with my wife, I started talking to her. You know, that's a good idea. And if you're going to have a relationship with God, you have to talk to him. It's called prayer. And for believers, let me just say this. If you're a new believer, there are three critical things to start with. The word of God, prayer. This is the word of God that you just opened up. Prayer, talking to God, letting God talk to you, the simplest terms. It's more complicated than this. But God talks to us. We have his word. We talk to God. That's prayer. And then finding a church. Those are three critical beginning points. So if you haven't settled that, you need to do that. Right? Because it's in the context of the community of believers that we are stretched and grown and we learn all the other principles that have to do with uh, walking out the Christian life. Okay, so I'm assuming that already. And I always have a picture in my mind when I think of prayer. Some of you may remember when we were having prayer meetings here because we were moving in toward the solemn assembly. Does anybody remember those fun times? Which aren't totally done yet, but we're, we're on task, and it's all good. And uh, one of the pictures I always have in my mind is knowing how to pray rightly. Has anybody ever struggled with that? Like, what is God's will in this situation? You know, God told me that this woman should say yes when I ask her to marry me. No, no I'm married. I'm, this is an illustration. I'm not talking about me now. 
My point is, the Holy Spirit better tell her that this is the right thing too, right? Because I already know the will of God. Really? Well, he hasn't spoken to me yet, so get lost. And so sometimes we're praying off target. So that person who thinks this way gets all his friends to pray. Make, you know, oh, she's got to change her mind and say yes and blah, blah, blah. And God's saying, uh-uh, you're missing it totally. I like to think of that story in the Old Testament. Every, I think even many, many uh, outside of the faith know the story of this little Jewish kid. He wasn't so little. He was a fine young man, probably 18, 19 years old, who went up against this giant Philistine. Anybody remember that story? Uh, people know it because we even use it as a, as a metaphor today. Non-Christians use it as a metaphor. You know, we take Goliath out. And what had to happen? What had to happen was somebody with enough chutzpah had to go up against this guy and make sure that he hit the target precisely. The scripture says he took that stone and slung it, hit the Philistine in the forehead, sunk into his forehead, stunned him, almost killed him, knocked him out. That didn't kill him. Uh, we know how it ended. Yeah, thank you. That's very graphic. <laughs> David used his own sword and uh, the Goliath sword. And took it out. Anyway, the point I'm making is that's a great illustration in my mind of how to pray. So I tried to encourage people, let's try to pray on target. So sometimes we pray for healing and we're like, oh, if it's your will, if it, well, obviously we don't know what his will is. Sometimes we can't know. But in some cases we can know. And that's why today I want to talk about praying on target from this portion in Philippians. Because sometimes praying is like this. There's the target. Now, we, we talk about this kind of illustration even in business, right? If, you're, if you have goals in business... So you throw your dart, you have something you want to do, you want to accomplish, and the dart lands up in the upper corner off the grid completely. You can still be successful simply by moving the target. <laughs> now it's still dead center. <laughs> so I'm succeeding all the time, man. I'm telling you, I got to made. I just keep changing the rules. No, I'm kidding. So you get the idea? But the thing is, you really didn't want to hit up in that corner. You wanted to hit back there. So if there's something specific that we're praying for, we want to know that we're praying according to the will of God and see results. And so what we find in this passage is a surefire way to pray authoritatively all the time, to be on target. And there are a number of ways to do that. Let me just say this. Would everyone agree that probably... Paul and Jesus especially know something about praying. You, would you all agree with that? Okay. Paul, the apostle who helped plant the church all over the known world in the Roman Empire, he probably knew something about praying. A little bit. And I'm glad you agree. And Jesus definitely knew something about praying. And both of them use passage. Of, there are passages of Scripture describing their instruction about prayer. Example, it's always right. We just prayed about this a minute ago in our, in our worship prayer time. Jesus said, look out, see the, the, the fields that are ripe unto harvest? What does he say? He doesn't say pray about the harvest. He says pray that God would raise up laborers to help harvest. That's an appropriate prayer. It's always on target. Paul prays many times, and Jesus prayed. Another example, I'm praying about you, Peter, for example, as well as my disciples, that God, Father, you would keep them in the world, not out of the world, in the world, separate from the world, protected, in other words, but not necessarily free from opposition or persecution or those things. I'm asking that you stand, stand firm. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will stand. This is one of those kind of passages. Paul is saying this, and if you have your Bible open, you can follow along with me, starting in verse 9. I'm just going to read it again, just to remind us. This I pray, Paul says, he's saying to one of his favorite churches. Remember, the Philippians were a lively church. And he says, I'm praying that your love may abound still more and more 
Now, isn't that a legitimate prayer request? To constantly pray for ourselves and our fellow saints that our love would abound still more and more. In real knowledge, all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And all of God's people said, yeah, isn't that always on target? That we might glorify God? I've mentioned it numerous times in the book of Acts. Peter gets arrested. He's in prison, and and the church is praying fervently on his behalf. Remember that? And I believe they were praying on target, even though God did something above and beyond what they expected. For those who don't know the story, Peter gets arrested, unjust persecution. He's thrown in jail. The church is praying fervently on his behalf. What do you think they're praying for? Help him to stand firm because Stephen's... That already happened. This is probably going to happen to him. May he stand firm and glorify God right to the end. Well, God sends an angel and lets him out. That's cool if you're praying on target and he does above and beyond. Don't you think that's cool? I think like God's into that. (laughs) Like he agrees. Yeah, I like the way you're praying. I'm going to surprise you. So they know something about prayer. So this is legitimate praying. It's always on target. First one, I want to start at the bottom and work my way up in the text because it ends with this statement that you would manifest the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Who remembers where our uh, reform colleagues have in the Westminster Confession the very reason man exists? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, Those of you who have capacity for heavy-duty theological reading, you may want to indulge yourself in some of Piper's writings, John Piper. Uh, Desiring God was his classic. He got in trouble because he called himself a Christian hedonist. Okay, you are here. All right. You know, hedonist means living for pleasure, right? And uh, he said, no, I'm a Christian hedonist. And what he meant was this. He modified the statement, we should glorify God by enjoying him forever. By enjoying him forever. His thinking being, if I am really alive in Christ, I enjoy the life God has given me and I enjoy God now. And by enjoying God, God is glorified. I think he's right. Because we were made to be in relationship with God. Does that make sense? Let me show you something, if I could launch into the book of Revelation, a great scene in heaven where the elders of, uh, of the, uh, the saints of God are worshiping God and honoring him. And this statement is made, Worthy art thou, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. We have to begin with God. He's the one that made us. We were made for God. We don't get that left to ourselves. We think we're made for us because we're so cool. But we were made for God. And the way uh, we are designed to function is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Anybody also remember, I'm doing a lot of flashbacks here today. We read, some of us read The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer. Anybody remember some of that? Just a little bit of uh, thought provocation, if I may. Going back to a couple of quotes in here uh, about us. Human beings, how we're put together and what God has in mind. The human mind, being created, has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is wholly outside of the circle of our familiar knowledge. We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being, who is responsible to no one, who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. In other words, we're not sure how we like that. But here's another point that... um, that he makes about man being made in the image of God. Uh, If I can find it. 
Yeah, man is a created being. Uh, for reasons known only to himself, God honored man above all other beings by creating him in his own image. And let it be understood that the divine image in man is not a poetic fancy, not an idea born of religious longing. It is a solid theological fact taught plainly throughout Scripture, through the sacred Scriptures, and recognized by the church, now get this, as a truth necessary to a right understanding to have right thinking. In fact, that was the beginning of his whole book. He, he was saying, we need to think rightly about God in order to think rightly at all. And that would make sense if we are, in fact, created beings. One last thing I'd like to read. This one is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, on the subject. He's talking about the pursuit of God with our mind, glorifying him, thinking about him. The picture that came to my mind this morning as I was praying was, you know when you have something on your television you have, or on your, your computer screen, small, it, it reduces, and then you click on it, it gets big. On our TV screen, we need to get God big on the screen. That will help us to understand ourselves as well. Because we're made in the image of God. And there's some implications in that. So anyway, he goes on to say, When asked in reverence and, and their answers sought in humility, the questions about what God is like, even though we can only understand a certain amount, God has graciously let us know quite a bit about himself. These are questions that cannot but be pleasing to our Father who is in heaven. Quoting Julian of Norwich, for he willeth that we be occupied in knowing and loving till the time that we shall be fulfilled in heaven. For all things, of all things, the beholding and the loving of the maker. I don't want you to fall asleep on me on this one. I know I'm reading. For of all things, the beholding and loving of the maker maketh the soul to seem less in its own sight. And most filleth him with reverent dread and true meekness, with plenty of charity for his fellow Christians. Are, did you follow what that was? I'm not sure I followed it. Here's what he's saying. The more I begin to look into the nature of God, the more small and less important I appear to myself, which will have an inverse effect on seeing my brothers and sisters maybe as more important than I thought they were. I will be more gracious, more merciful, more forgiving, etc. Okay? Would you say that's where buku Christians are stuck? Because we're better than everybody else and they sure are dumb. Oh, I made that up? I don't think so. I love that last line from Julian of Norwich, with plenty of charity for his fellow Christians. It's something that is a byproduct of meditating, pondering the glory and honor of the Father in heaven. I left that up there the whole time, sorry. There are two words that are used in this text at the very end where it says, um, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Some people do want the Greek. You don't have to write them down. There's no test on this, but you do want to see the words. Okay, so here it is. Glory is the Greek word doxa, from which we get doxology, right? To glorify, all right? To glorify, to glory, to show splendor. In other words, it means when it's a verb, to honor and praise. Isn't that appropriate for we as Christians? To honor and praise the God who made us. In fact, our very existence honors and praises the God who made us, whether we acknowledge it or not. Non-Christians, whether they acknowledge it or not, they're made in the image of God. And every time they step into their created purpose, they make things. Did God make? When we make things. I, I, love, I love watching culture where people do things. I, one, I, all right, I'm gonna, now I'm going to really put myself at risk. Uh, one of my favorite uh, artists from back a few years, some of the music just is, blows me away, is Elton John. Now, he's got, he's got a bunch of stuff wrong in his head. But 
sorry, is that going on the airwaves? I but I would love to talk with him. But my point is, when, when I see that, that gifting at work, it glorifies God. Do you understand that ability glorifies God? I don't mean it's a Christian song. That's not what I'm saying. We think too rigidly, wrongly. There's a lot that God has created that glorifies him. The birds of the air, the, the, you know, the beasts of the field, when they do what they were created to do, are glorifying God. There's even a hymn that says that, all creatures of our God and King. You know, the birds aren't converted. Well, actually, they probably are converted better than us. But anyway, they're glorifying God by fulfilling their created purpose. Is that making sense? Okay, and I think people fulfill some of their creative purpose even though they haven't entered into the fullness of their created purpose, which is to be aligned with the living God who made them. Is that clear enough? Okay, so I'm forgiven for liking that. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> second word, praise, epinos. Interesting word, which means commendation, approval. The old word they used to use, approbation. Approval. Our judgment is good. Our judgment about this is good. God deserves to be judged good and to be honored and praised. And we worship him in this context, in this verse, by the fruit of righteousness in our lives. He deserves to be glorified. I'm going to show you something just a little bit further down in this passage. You don't have to look there. It'll be up on the screen here in a second. But Paul says this. You need to know before you read it. See, you're all reading it already. I took it away. Let me just say, Paul is in jail when he's writing this letter. Now, probably it was one of the imprisonments that he got out of. And so I think what he expresses here is, I'm planning to come see you because I think I'm going to get out because I think God's going to answer your prayer. I think I've discerned God's will in this thing. But he didn't know for sure. He didn't know because, let's face it, some of the powers that be could be pretty arbitrary and life was pretty cheap during the time of the Roman Empire. So he says this, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always, what? Be exalted in my body, whether, whoa. Either way, if I get out, or if this is the end, I am confident that God will be exalted. Exalted in my body. Here's the word that is used. Megaluno. Mega. We use that all the time. Like, that's a mega problem. And luno is to enlarge. So, to make it longer. In fact, I think it's used about the, uh, the Hebrews that like to wear long tassels to show how religious they were. It's that word that's used, the megaluna. has nothing to do with the luna family. Okay, megaluna, to make large, to make it huge, to turn on the TV screen and make the icon go from here to here. I'm going to exalt God one way or the other, whether it's by life or by death. Now, that is a commitment spirit. That's a disciple. That's what he believes. Do you know, there's a number of ways that we honor and exalt God. We can exalt him by life or by death in his case. If he's going to be martyred, he's going to honor God. Uh, we can exalt God with our verbalizations of praising him or sharing the gospel or living out the gospel. There's even a statement in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. Does anybody remember when the children of Israel were trying to uh, take the promised land? The first city that fell was Jericho, and there was a character named Achan who stole some stuff that was off limits. God said, everything's off limits here. This city belongs to me. Everything in it belongs to me. Don't take anything. Later on, you'll be able to take treasure, but now you can't. And this man, Achan, <clears throat> excuse me, with his whole family, snuck stuff into their tent and thought they could pull that off like God's blind and doesn't see it. They don't realize he's the living God. He sees the inner man of every human being. Your inner thoughts, your deceitful thoughts, your angry thoughts, he sees everything. And so the next thing you know, small town next, AI, uh, just send a small group, you know, send a small troop, we'll wipe them out, we're... They go down there, what happened? Anybody ever read it? 
a bunch of men get killed, a bunch of moms and kids don't have their fathers come home that night because of that man's sin. And so God singles him out and he gets judged. But here's the interesting thing. Joshua grabs Achan and says, give glory to God and tell me what you did. Give glory to God and confess your sin. Ooh, ow. A spiritual leader, I don't want to name him because I, it's hard to respect. He's not the best. But he had a great line. When we confess our sins, then God doesn't get blamed with the consequences. Why do we go through our solemn assembly? Why do we need to continue to go through that mentally, that spirit? Because when we strut and when we have wrong thinking that says, oh, we need to hide these sins, we need to hide this scandal, we need to hide this. Churches try to do that. Oh, we need to protect the name of the Lord. You're not protecting the name of the Lord. You're destroying the name of the Lord. Give glory to God and admit what you did and then he will not be blamed with the consequences. So it always works. I apologize for this terrible thing. And, and the non-believer looks and goes, really? Rather than more of the same. Does that make sense? That requires a little bit of death to self. We're going to get to that in chapter 2. <laughs> Not this week. Oh, boy, can't wait. <laughs> What the old-timers called mortification. Mortification of the flesh, putting to death our stiff-necked, I'm right, we're not right. All righty, megaluno. Next thing, we want to grow in grace. By the way, I'm going to do, do violence today. I have three points in my sermon. I'm only giving you two. I didn't get paid enough this week, so I only get two. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> totally joking. I'm trying to, I, actually what I'm trying to do is I'm, trying, I'm still trying to learn how to preach. I'm running out of time. Yeah, I'm 65. I'm in, I'm re- <laughs> I see the horizon and it's coming quick. Anyway, now what I mean by that is less is more. I'd rather have you marinate on a couple of things that really make sense and that can get down in my DNA, like that last point I just shared. I'd rather have you marinate in that and get that down into your foot, foot shoe leather uh, than overload. My tendency is to want to hear, it's this word, this word, this word, this word. So I'm going to probably skip the last point. But we'll come back to it, I promise, I promise. Patience, Daniel son, patience. Growth and grace. We've quoted this before, St. Irenaeus, who, by the way, a very interesting character, two generations down from the Apostle John, as I recall. So, pretty good direct line of discipleship and learning. Irenaeus is the one who's, uh, uh, to whom is attributed the statement, man fully alive is the glory of God, right? We've talked about that before. The glory of God is man fully alive. That's what I mean about not just his natural abilities and gifts being put to use, but his upward connection as well, being, being in, in, a, in a bond relationship with his creator who made him. The glory of God is man fully alive. Regeneration is necessary. Being born from above is necessary. If you've never rested in that issue of putting Christ first, I'd be glad to talk with you today. I'll stay up front for a while after service. Happy to share with anyone and don't be, don't be afraid to come up. One example, how do we grow in grace? There's a number of ways we manifest the fact that we're growing and we're becoming more like Christ. What do you think is the biggest one? Jesus said, all men will know your, my disciples. Why? Because you love one another, right? That's the huge one. It's huge. Agape love. Translated charity in the old King James. Why? Because it's... Not just, ooh, I feel so gooey every time I see my brothers and sisters on Sunday. I'm just, <laughs> That's not it. I mean, you may have that, and that's nice if you do. 
Charity, or agape is the Greek word, and it basically means to put another person's good above your own. It's caring for another person, showing mercy, whatever it happens to be. And yeah, there is affection in it. I'm not going to deny that. But it's a choice even more than a feeling. Right? Like when we make a covenant commitment to get married. Better be a choice to keep covenant, right? Not just feelings. Because you may have noticed feelings go up and down. Anybody ever notice that? Come on, stop lying. Admit it. Yes, they do. Love is a maturing process. You got that in your notes there. Love maturing in true righteousness, that you might love more and more, the scripture says. Your love may abound still more and more in two things. And these are the words I want to look at today, real knowledge and all discernment. So we're going to get to that. It's on target to pray for all saints, including myself, that I would grow in grace, that I would manifest love more and more. We love God and can love each other, and I can tell you I needed this in my life. We love God and love each other because he first loved us. 1 John, 1, uh, 1 John 4.20. Did I hear Bill? Bill! <laughs> Unmistakable yay out there. I heard that. <laughs> hey, brother. It was because of God transforming me that I have the love for the brethren. And let me admit something to you. I've had to progressively grow in that regard. Because over 40 years of ministry, I've met a lot of Christians that aren't very lovable. I know that's a shock, but it's just true. And God has been working still in my spirit, even since coming here, of more deeper love for saints even if they're really broken and broken. Okay. <laughs> we love them because he first loved us. And the very next verse says this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's lying. Don't you love passages like this? Ugh. You know, especially when I know I'm really ticked at somebody and I hate his guts right now. You know, and then I read that and I go, I'm a stinking liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. Okay, so I don't love God either. <laughs> you know. Sorry, I'm getting wound up. None of us do it perfectly. You understand? We're all in process. But what you should have as a desire, as a personal goal, is, Lord, I want to see more grace and love in my spirit a year from now, two years from now, than I'm experiencing now. Let me give you a little bit of hope. Are there any brothers and sisters that you know you just love? Are there? Okay, you're in. Boy, you're not following me, I guess. <laughs> Do you follow what I'm saying? What does it say? If any man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he hasn't seen. In other words, it's a non-negotiable for born-again Christians. You've got to love your brother. So you got to be able to answer, are there any brothers or sisters that I love? And I mean, I really love. Okay, then you're in. Now work it up from there. You see what I'm saying? Work it up from there. Because you got to get to a point where you can even love the people who are the most irritating. And, and I haven't totally won that one yet, but I'm getting there. Of course, I know you're way ahead of me on that. Okay. Here's the words that are used in this passage. Uh, in, in the beginning of uh, Philippians there. That you would grow in love and real knowledge and all discernment, that you might become sincere and blameless. These are the only two words I want to look at right now. Sincere. Heilekrenes. Does anybody recognize in the Greek on the back end, the first part of that word might be familiar. Yet yeah, Helios. Anybody know who Helios, the, the, the sun god, right? The sun god, that's it. Helios, it's sun judgment. The word krino in the, in the New Testament, the Greek word krino is to judge, to assess. We love that word, don't we? Because every time somebody starts to get close to us and says, I think you have an issue here, we say, don't judge, man. You know, don't judge me, Earl. You know, that whole thing. And uh, we think we're not supposed to judge. Did you know that's totally not what it's talking about? Judgment is being critical and nasty, unloving and ungracious, unmerciful. That's what Jesus is condemning. 
The Bible says clearly we are to judge whether things are right or wrong. We are to judge them. And, uh, and so this word, son judgment, is a picture as best as I can understand it. And I'll use my handkerchief. So back in the days before, there was uh, dehumidifiers, one second, and then, then I'd be happy to answer your football questions. Um, Boeing, thank you. Back then, when there was no dehumidifiers, there were not refrigerators, things like that, things were in storage. They didn't always survive, right? So the, the meaning of the word means you take a piece of cloth, for example, that you want to use, and you open it up, but you go outside in the sunlight. And in the light of the sun, you can judge whether it has mold in it or it's been eaten or what have you. The sun brings the light so I can see clearly. I can judge whether it's clean or dirty, valuable, usable, or ruined. That's the word that is used, sincere. And how that gets translated is simply to be unsullied, to be pure in your motivation. Here's a way to quote it. Found pure when enfolded and examined in the sun's light, the real deal. I had a youth guy down on Long Island that used to say to me when he introduced me to people, and by the way, I've talked with a few of you about my ordeal on Long Island because it was almost like, like a gang war in that particular church. And uh, so when he would introduce me to people who were really living like disciples, he would say, uh, this is Jerry. He, he's the real deal. I love that. You know, he, he, this, is, this is it. He's the real deal. Yeah, write that down. He's the real, wrote it down. Hawko said it. Write it down. Uh, he's the real deal. You know what I mean? If you opened him up in the sunlight, you'd say, oh, he really is this. He really does believe this stuff. He's for real. It's the word that is used. And then one other word, blameless, a proscopus. I'm going to have to park on that for a second. So what's your question? Is there a difference between judging it and holding somebody There's a difference, yes. Yeah. If I can assess something, it doesn't mean I'm supposed to do anything about it. And if a brother helps, uh, wants my help to help him be accountable, that's right on. Yeah, that's totally right on. We need those kind of things. Although accountability doesn't really work unless the person really wants it. This is what's wrong, right. This is what's broken, yeah, right. Yep. I love class. Class is in session. Any other questions? All right, here we go. Blameless aproscopus. Anybody know what atheism is? Yeah, it's without theism, right? A means without. Amoral means no morals. Immoral is evil. Amoral means no moral value. Atheism. Theism is belief in God. Atheism is there's no God. Everybody with me? Same thing on this word, aproscopos, without aproscopos. That's correct. She got a 90 on her test. She didn't even fill it in. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what happens with teachers in the room. See what I mean? Anyway, no, that's excellent. That's great. It's without aproscopos. Okay, I'm moving on. Anyway. <laughs> What is a proscopus? Oh, you're going to like this one. I'm going to tell you. Without something to trip over. Quote, not being a stumbling block. Now, the reason I'm saying I have to unpack that for just a minute is because Pharisees love to tell you you're throwing a stumbling block in front of them. Now I just lost a bunch of people. What is he saying? I'm saying legalistic, self-righteous people who have all the rules lined up when they find out that you go to the movies or like Elton John, they go, well, we know there's something wrong in his spirit. He's not as spiritual as I am. And you shouldn't say something like that in front of the church because someone in the church might get the idea that it's okay to listen to Elton John. So you're throwing a stumbling block out. That is legalism, and it's from the pit of hell. It is not the truth. 
What was that all about? Anyway. <laughs> Yay, we like legalism. What are you telling me? No, <laughs> I got it totally. Now, praise God, you know, some churches, they do burst into applause. The guy actually says something right once in a while. They go, yay! This was the first. Get out! No more questions for you. You're done. <laughs> go to the principal's office. Okay. No, this is too... And by the way, for anyone who feels like this is not church, this is disrespectful, that's part of that legalism. I'm just being blunt. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Somebody got on his case. This is the, pre the Prince of Baptist Preachers. Built the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I got to visit that place, by the way. Now it's a little bit legalistic, to be blunt. But in its heyday, God's glory was manifested. People were coming to faith like crazy. And he used to tell jokes. And people got on his case and said... You are using too much humor. This is not honoring God. This is, this is not proper. And he simply said, if only you knew how much I was holding back, you'd be really proud of me. <laughs> if you haven't noticed that God has a sense of humor, you're missing something. He made camels, for example. <laughs> Anteaters. I mean, come on. And Jesus told jokes to his disciples. They strain at a gnat and they swallow a camel. I remember hearing a famous preacher, I can't, his name's not coming to me, but the disciples picturing the oak, oak, oak with the, the humps going down, you know, as they're swallowing a camel. And it's hysterical. Okay, enough said. Blameless, without a stumbling block. What it means is no genuine offense. No purposely derailing the growth of a brother or sister. That's what it's talking about. And I can derail the growth of a brother or sister a lot faster with my mouth than I can with a movie. Where we don't get stuff is, well, anyway, I don't have a whole time for a sermon on that. But... I wish I could follow my notes. I hate when this happens. <laughs> the biggest one, as I'm trying to say about stumbling blocks, has to do with our tongue. So I'm just going to go right there if I could. I love the book of James. It's a great statement in James. Let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. Anybody remember that? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. We put the bits in the horse's mouth so that they may obey us. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're still moved by a little rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So, but the tongue no man can tame. Behold, all manner of species, beasts and birds have been tamed by the human race, but... No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Are you following the implications? Because here's how it works. Let me give you a little scientific insight. What goes on here is first, primary. What goes on here is what comes out here. If I can stop it here, I have to start up here. If I start up here, I'll stop it here. If I stop it here, it won't come out here. Fill it in. Whatever the sin issue you're struggling with that's beating the daylights out of you, if you'll win the battle here, the battle for your mind, you will control what comes out of your mouth. If you can control what's coming out of your mouth, no problem controlling everything else. Your sexual drives, your eating, whatever. Fill in the blanks. There's a discipline that has been missing in the Christian church for years. In fact, the art of thinking is mostly lost in our culture. And that has filtered into the church as well. If anyone can control what he says, he's, he's uh, not stumbling, not throwing out stumbling blocks to people with what he says. He's a perfect man. That doesn't mean literally perfect. But it's a picture of maturation, which has been the task of my personal spirit for 40 years. I've got to bring this thing under control. I have to learn how to speak life rather than death. That's why I talk about that all the time. Let me share a couple of verses from 
Not verses. Well, they're almost inspired. Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned him before, correct? I can use my tongue to speak life, or I can use my tongue to speak death. So, what should I start with? Let's start with death. Then we'll move to life. That's better, right? We'll go that way. There's a chapter in his book of Life Together. It's talking about life in the Church of Jesus, which is a vital necessity, which people take for granted today and ignore. To your harm, to your own harm. I'm just telling you. I am a fanatic on this subject. I can't change my mind, and I won't change the subject. I was sharing with... Ministry, chapter called Ministry. Here's the first subcategory of this chapter, the ministry of holding one's tongue. You want to minister to your brothers and sisters? Learn the ministry of holding your tongue. Often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. It is certain that the spirit of self-justification can be overcome only by the spirit of grace. Nevertheless, isolated thoughts of judgment can be curbed and smothered by never allowing them to be the right to be uttered except as a confession of sin. He who holds his tongue in check controls body and mind, right, James? Thus, it is a decisive rule. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. (laughs) In other words, zip it. Because stuff's going through your mind that is, may even be true and accurate, but it isn't going to build anybody up. Oh, if you only knew all the stuff goes through my mind, you'd know the wisdom in what I'm speaking here. I love that. The ministry of holding one's tongue. But there's also the side of speaking life. God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, it speaks to others. This is about living in community. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. Does that ever happen? It happens to me. The world that we're living in is so contrary to the truth today, at war with the truth, if you will, that I I, I am daunted at times, and I need life spoken to me. He needs his brother, man, as a bearer or woman, as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Get this, I love this line. The Christ in his own heart, The Christ in my heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. My heart might be uncertain, but my brother at the moment is sure because the Spirit is speaking and quickening the word to him. And that gets into my soul and lifts me up. We can speak death or life. It's the real deal. I appreciate Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm going to close with a story about that. Years ago, I was living in Tucson, Arizona. My neighbor, uh, I had a neighbor that was a hardcore biker dude who we actually loved each other. And, um, and one night, these kids um, were out partying in the middle of the street and all kinds of noise. And I, I, I had just gotten home late. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And this car pulls up, and I see these two kids on a bicycle. One sticks his head in the car window, and somebody all of a sudden gets out of the car, takes out a baseball bat, and drops this kid right in the street on his bicycle. And my reaction was, and I wasn't super brave at the time, but I'm running, hey, what are you doing? You know, this kind of thing toward the street. And then he looks at me, picks up his bat, and he says, you want some of this? Well, the answer is no. So I'm running away. Mr. Macho, this was before my days of karate. But anyway, run up to the door. You know what? I'm not going to get in my house fast enough. He's going to cream me. So I started heading over to Charlie's house. And thank God he heard the commotion, came out, and used his crutch to intervene. He he had a broken leg at the time. Between me and this madman. 
it became a big legal thing. They were arrested, blah, 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 blah. And I just told the police what happened. That's all. I just told them what I saw. And a few days later, this woman shows up at my door. I wasn't home, thankfully. My wife fields the question. And there's a woman who says, get this. This is the difference between life speak and death speak. Is your husband a minister? My wife says, yeah. I mean, she kind of picked up something wasn't right. And or, Dane, the minister? <laughs> yes. Well, I can't believe an ordained minister. And by the way, I'm not exaggerating by much. I can't believe an ordained minister would lie. And my wife said, he doesn't lie and shut the door. <laughs> now, that's the right response for death speak. Shut the door. But as I was pondering this whole thing, they got theirs. I thought, there is the picture of whether we're speaking life or we're speaking death to each other. I can't believe that a Christian would stumble in that way. A born-again Christian? <laughs> or, may my love increase more and more. So I'm so sorry you stumbled. How can I help? How can I keep this private and help you advance? Let's stand together as we close. <clears throat> We're on a journey, King Jesus, and I am grateful that there are brothers and sisters here, some new brothers and sisters who have grown to love you. Some of us are integrating your insights and your Holy Spirit's promptings into our lives, and we're grateful for that, and we're asking that these tribes might increase. Help us, God, to, uh, to get the picture on the screen really big so that you're large. And our stuff is a little smaller, even though, thank you, Jesus, that you care about even our small stuff. You care about it. But help us to get it in perspective and help our love to grow more and more in real knowledge, in discernment, in sincerity, and without any kind of stumbling block. Well, thank you for helping us today. We worship you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.